probability that one or more team members may be infected by intruder organism. 75%. If intruder organism reaches civilized areas, entire world population infected 27,000 hours from first contact. Welcome back to the Thing Minute podcast, where we discuss John Carpenter's 1982 science fiction horror masterpiece, The Thing, one minute at a time. I'm Harper Debbie Harris from HarperWHarris.com, and joining me again today is... Ryan Haupt. You can find me on Twitter, at Haupt. Cool. So, uh, today we are talking about Minute 43 of The Thing, which begins with the cells on the computer simulation going through the assimilation, and then ends with the entire world population infected in 27-something. Like, we don't get to see the rest, so I don't know if it's 27 days, 27 minutes. We'll find out tomorrow. <laughs> the inspiration for 28 Days Later, clearly. <laughs> yeah, this is where it all began. So today we get a full minute of the uh, the computer simulation slash animation. So let's really dig into this thing. Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, so I... Oh, man. So tell me... Uh, just, you know, I'm assuming this thing is pretty damn close to 100% accurate in where science and computer technology was in 1982, correct? I uh, can't really speak to that, but uh, I can speak to modeling a little bit. Um, you know, I'm a paleontologist, technically a paleoecologist, and so there's a lot of ecological models that are relevant to some of the work that I do. Um not a lot of models like this, you know, epidemiology, infectious disease sort of models. So I can't speak super intelligently to those. Um, I don't know how do you want to how do you want to tackle this? I can talk a little bit about the models that go into my work and and give that perspective on yeah, how sure. scientific models actually work. Yeah. So one of the types of science I do is something called stable isotope analysis, where you look at the isotopic composition of non-radioactive isotopes in, like, an animal's tissues. And so, for example, okay, you, let's take a, a lion, right? And if we look at the hair of the lion, we can get a sense of the isotopic composition. And that isotopic composition indicates something about the inputs. So if we consider the lion as a closed system that's receiving inputs in the form of food and water... Mm -hmm we might want to know what exactly are those inputs. How many zebra versus wildebeest versus kudu is that lion eating? And so if we go and sample the isotopic composition from the tissues of the zebra and the giraffe and the kudu and whatever other, the water buffalo, whatever other animals I said, you can start to build a series of inputs. And so like, okay, we know that the value for this input is this, and we know that the value for X, Y, and Z inputs are, are three different values. And then you can take the values from the lion and, and you can run this model called a, a stable isotope mixing model that tries to basically reverse calculate what percentage of each input would have to go into the lion to get the desired output that you uh, measured. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. So the way there's, I have a friend who's much better at these than I am, and the way he describes it is it's essentially taking a can of paint and trying to calculate what colors went into the mix to make that exact output color. Yeah, that's that's a good way to explain it. And, and you guys actually had, on uh, Science Sort of, you guys had a, a pretty recent episode that's all about this, right? Uh, did we? I think so. I thought so. <laughs> I mean, it it's entirely possible that we did. <laughs> I think you guys, uh, there was maybe two or three episodes back, there was one uh, that had a lot about 
about uh, isotopes and, and how, how that goes into the study. Yeah, yeah, we did a thing about, yeah, with coyote isotopes. <laughs> um, and and yeah, they yeah, did use some, some mixing models, totally, yeah. So this is, this is something that, you know, uh, we actually do, and that's the kind of modeling that I'm the most familiar with. Yeah. And I, I think it's pretty cool, but it's clearly distinct from the type of modeling that's going on here. So what's going on here looks to be more like the modeling of... I think there's two possibilities for what kind of model he's running right now. Mm -hmm. So another friend of mine who is on my podcast often, Ben Tippett, has done some mathematical modeling of like zombie outbreaks. Yeah. And uh, he was in a volume about this, like an actual book that was published that you can go get called Mathematical Modeling of Zombies. It was published uh, awesome. a couple of years ago. And a lot of that looks at different mathematical ways of modeling how a zombie outbreak would actually work. Uh, they use things called random walk models. And so mm. random walk model is essentially if you imagine that you've got a x-axis and a y-axis. The x-axis is time, right? So you just move forward in time as you go across the x-axis. And all these points on the y-axis start at zero. And then with every iteration of time, you either add one or subtract one from that zero. And if you do that perfectly randomly, you can wind up with all these different paths that whatever little particle you're looking at can take. Yeah. And so you can kind of imagine that as the way a disease might move through a population in terms of just kind of randomly moving in ways that it might or might not bump into something it can infect. Yeah. Which kind of looks a little bit to me like what this cell is doing. It's um, kind of if you think about Brownian motion, the way that dust dust particles float in the air in seemingly like kind of random ways, but they can only move in a given direction over a given unit of time. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to think about these. The other way to think about these models that uh, might be a little bit more accurate, and this is something I just was researching earlier today specifically to come on the show and talk about it, <laughs> is what's called the SIR model of infectious disease or epidemiology. And essentially that's where you have three different states that any given individual within the population can be as a function of time. So you can be susceptible to the infection, you can be infected, or you can be recovered. So that's where the SIR comes from. So susceptible, okay. infected, and recovered. Now, recovered can mean a couple of things. You've recovered from the disease and are now immune to another infection. So right. like when you get chickenpox once, you don't get chickenpox again because you've recovered mm -hmm. or you're dead. <laughs> You've been recovered removed. can also be dead. So, recovered just basically means you're removed from either the susceptible or the infectious population. Okay, yeah, I see. <laughs> um, and so that also looks very similar to like what he's kind of running in that you know you've got a cell in his model that's clearly the infectious cell. And because then you've it's got red cells and spiky. In his model, exactly. And then you've got <laughs> cells in his model that are the susceptible cells, and then the infectious cell attacks the susceptible cells and makes them also into infectious cells. And the thing we're lacking in this model is any sense of recovery. Now, to make a model like this, you have to put in a lot of assumptions about transition rates and potential immunity. I mean, you can make a very simple version of this model that doesn't include a lot of these, but you are making a lot of assumptions about how quickly things happen. So like, right. how quickly do you go from being inceptible to infected once the infection is presented to your system? Is there any transition rate for recovery or is there any uh, death? Like, does the cell eventually just lice and kill itself once it's infected? Um, so there's a lot of assumptions that even a very simple model is going to include. And so a lot of times when you see the outputs of models like this, you get a range of values. So it would say, you know, there's a 95% probability that 66 to 85% uh, or there's, you know, 
uh, I guess I'm phrasing that badly. There's there's a 95% probability that at least one person is infected within your group. You wouldn't get just a 75% probability. Right. It would be a confidence interval saying 66 to 85% possibility, and we're 95% sure that that is true. Yeah, so. that makes sense. But even then, it's all based on the assumptions that Blair puts into the model in the first place. And so if, you're, if your assumptions or what we sometimes call priors are wrong, then you can't really trust the output anyway. Right. And so I think, I'm very suspicious of this model. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the really the main question is presumably this is like just hours later. Like there's nothing to, to, to make us think that this is a long period of time later when they've had like a lot of time to study it or anything like that. So yeah, just the fact that he would have had time to, you know, learn about how the how the thing kind of replicates and how quickly it happens and you know what that even looks like. It, it's, and then write a program because this exactly. is really custom written code. Like he hasn't, you know, this is code that like even as a paleontologist when I run my statistical analyses, I'm using a, a program called R, just mm-hmm. the letter R, and it's a programming language that's written specifically to do statistics and data modeling and data visualization. Yeah. And so like, I will write programs like this for myself where if I'm trying to test the integrity of the data sheet that I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to like put in a big data set into my program and then run some analyses on it. But I want to make sure that all the data is valid first, you know, I'll write like funny little programs for myself where the output will be like the data all looks good, whatever undergrad minion that compiled it may live today, (laughs) you know? So, so, but that all has to be custom written by me for myself. And then, and it only takes like 10 minutes, right? (laughs) Like, I mean, depends on the, the, (laughs) the complexity of the function. I don't know from a 1982 perspective. I mean, is this still the era where you had to get the punch cards, right? Right, yeah. He's, he's like sliding in punch cards to run this program or not, so... Right, yeah. It's, it's, it's not like he opens up like a, um, you know, infection protocol prediction program and then just plugs in this. It's, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of a lot of issues here. The other thing that I, I think is kind of interesting, maybe talking about that, that modeling thing, is just the way that it... So looking at that, the animated model of how it takes, takes it over. So the in, intruder organism reaches out a, a little tendril and grabs one of the other cells. But what I find strange to me is it always bugs me that it doesn't split into two cells at that point. Like it, it, the fact that it just takes it over and then I guess it just gets bigger. Um, yeah. kind, of, kind of implies that it just takes it over in one big chunk. Like it's a, like it's a giant single celled organism by the end or something. Which goes against kind of, you know, what we find out later in that each cell of the of the creature is its own functioning intelligent organism. Yeah. So I don't know I don't know if maybe just we're not seeing it split later, like that's the assumption or or what. I always that always kind of bothers me. Or Blair's code is just woefully insufficient to actually predict the behavior of this organism. <laughs> that's a definite possibility. <laughs> Yeah, he's when we cut to to Blair, he's looking with each scene in this part of the movie. He's looking increasingly haggard and uh, like he hasn't slept in a, in a while. So yeah, maybe he uh, maybe he made some some pretty uh, blaring mistakes here. Yeah, I mean, I understand the need to do some back of the envelope ca- calculations to try to figure out what's going on, but I feel like coming out with there is a definite 75% probability that somebody is infected. And then like, here is the exact amount of, I guess it says the estimated amount of time it would take to infect the entire world. Like these are huge leaps for, for the amount of data uh, they yeah. currently have to work with. And especially given my, my favorite leap here is the fact that Blair hits like four keys to somehow ask the computer to, to go from, you know, 
if even if you accept the fact that the computer somehow can predict that seventy five there's a seventy five percent chance that one or more people at the camp is already infected, but uh, that he hits like four keys on the keyboard and somehow asks it the probability or how fast world infection would would happen. <laughs> I mean that is my that is one of my favorite things about watching actors interact with computers because you know for so many things we rely on actors to actually do a convincing job of like performing surgery or riding a horse mm-hmm. or shooting a gun but when it comes to computers like we don't trust actors enough to even type properly and so everything <laughs> anytime you see an actor interacting with a computer in a in a movie or TV show the computer is just basically playing a video of whatever it is the computer's supposed to be doing. Right. And so the actor can hit any key they want, and that video is just going to keep going and show the thing that it's supposed to show. Right. And so we really don't trust actors to even pretend to type convincingly, <laughs> which is an interesting thing to just give them a pass on. I mean, I know it was the 80s, so it's, it's less reasonable to have somebody type well. But even shows like The West Wing, where there are speechwriters, the keys they're hitting mean nothing <laughs> to what's funny. actually happening on the screen. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah, I feel like movies and TV shows are just now finally kind of starting to understand how to how to show like text messages and stuff in a, a visually interesting way. And so, but yeah, computers that whole that whole typing thing is still an issue. And as, as a sound guy, it always is. A, it's a pet peeve of mine too when people are like going on Google on their computer in a in a movie or TV show, and it it makes a sound every time they like pull up a screen or it goes to the next screen or something. It's like Really? Like, are we not past this point where computers are not like a novelty where it's some like, you know, space age thing that that has to make a noise every time something happens? Like, we all know how the Internet works at this point. (laughs) What's the there's that uh, infamous scene from a TV show. It's one of those police procedural shows where they're trying to hack something and the hacker needs help. So somebody else just starts typing on the keyboard at the same time. (laughs) Like two people typing is going to make it happen faster than one. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I think I have seen that. Um yeah, so at least Blair can handle this on his own because he only does have to hit like four keys to to run this extremely sophisticated. Uh, but I also, I mean, the, the stopwatch makes me like, is he just benchmarking his code? Like, how efficiently did I write this? Is it going to run smoothly? Or like, what is the point of the stopwatch? Is time that of the essence that he's got to like, I've only got five minutes to see if this code checks out. I, I think he might just be testing the efficiency of his code by seeing how long it takes to run to completion. That would certainly make more sense than than the what we're made to assume in the movie is that he's timing how quickly the cell takes over other cells, which then, you know, somehow in the span of one cut, he programs into the computer to be able to uh, (laughs) figure out how likely somebody's infected. You know, I write a fair bit of code, but my code is by no means efficient from like a computer, you know, how the computer runs through it perspective. Right. And so I definitely have written pieces of code where I've run it and like, 90 seconds later, I'm like, oh, God, there's a broken loop in here somewhere. But then, you know, it does finish. I'm like, oh, it's just really badly written. But at least it works. (laughs) (laughs) And a modern computer is not as big an issue. But on these old computers, I imagine, you know. If you had a broken for loop in there and it just went on infinitely, you could you, you might not realize that for <laughs> a good yeah, that five, stopwatch ten might be running for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we, we talked about that uh, Wolfer Brimley does a great job of looking deep in thought. This mm-hmm. is one scene when I'm not sure I buy that. <laughs> like, no, totally. He yeah, kind of looks... just looks like he's staring ahead like uh, like maybe he had never seen a computer before. <laughs> well, is the you think when they're filming this scene, is the screen blank? He's just staring at an empty monitor? I would bet it was because yeah. I, I know this was one of the things they filmed later. So I'd be willing to bet that the animation wasn't even ready at this point, that they just mm. went ahead and filmed the stuff with Wilfred Brimley and then later added the actual animation. 
So he's probably just staring at a blank screen or, or you know, you know, thinking about being a cowboy or eating oatmeal or something. I'm not sure. Yeah, this is like, yeah, this is the polar opposite of Matthew McConaughey breaking down in Interstellar. Right. It's <laughs> like, the least emotive watching a thing happen, especially when what you're watching is the prediction for how long humanity will last. Yeah, really. That that would be really good to uh, somebody out there. Internet, get on that. Make a, a cut back and forth. As if they're on a Skype call. Um, yeah. McConaughey, <laughs> Wilford Brimley and Wilford's just totally not into it. Yeah. So, yeah, this scene is does kind of st- it stands out for me in a lot of ways. Um, obviously, in, in one of the it's it's kind of one of the less the places where you really have to suspend disbelief a little more. And, and, it, and like I mentioned yesterday, to me, it feels like it's one of the more dated parts of the movie, whereas the rest of the movie, you know, it's not like they're really making a lot of 80s references or driving 80s cars. You know, there's not a lot to really tie it to the time period really strongly, at least visually, uh, but this definitely does. <laughs> well, that's one of the things about horror movies, too, is you have to... Horror movies, I think, work best when there's an element of timelessness. Mm-hmm. And that's why so many modern horror movies struggle, because the first step in any modern horror movie seems to be, how do we make sure cell phones don't yeah, work? exactly. <laughs> or or <laughs> cut, cut the internet somehow. Get which, rid like, of the Wi-Fi. There, there are some movies that do, you know, we've already mentioned, uh, we've already mentioned Green Room, which does that really well, because you're in the middle of nowhere in mm-hmm. Oregon. And, and then movies like It Follows are like weird quasi-80s, yeah. do they have cell phones or not? And then, you know, uh, I don't know, do you see Get Out? Uh-huh. Like, like that was that one. They kind of failed a little bit because he just left his phone to charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> As if we wouldn't carry our phone around with us anyway. But yeah, it's it's always a thing you have to do in a horror movie is like remove some aspects of technology that make things too easy to solve. Yeah, and, uh, you know, an easy way to do that is put your movie in Antarctica. Yep, that's very true. Yeah, that's a, a good first step for any uh, any aspiring horror director if you want to. Yeah, because <laughs> this movie is still like. It still works because we still recognize Antarctica as a place that you can't easily get in and out of or right. communicate and get help for, from. Right, and that's obviously the main reason for kind of placing it there is the the isolation and the fact that they can't. I don't, they, they, it is a little odd to me. They don't really explain why they can't ever get in radio contact with anybody else. They kind of write it off as that it's maybe the storm, which uh, I don't know if I buy. But but yeah, just obviously as a location, being isolated is is kind of the main reason for doing that here. But yeah, it is. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, it follows is one of the ones I was thinking of too that does a really good job of in modern time, you know, a modern horror movie that makes it timeless and and doesn't kind of make very overt excuses for why they can't just you know pick up the phone and, and call the police or text somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I feel like they also the way they did the sound design in it follows is very much in the John Carpenter school. Yeah. And so it puts you in the mindset of these '80s horror movies where you wouldn't expect anyone to have a cell phone and yeah, be able to deal with it. Very true. Yeah, it definitely has an '80s feel, even though it doesn't, you know, very specifically date itself as '80s. Yeah, well, she's got that weird, that weird clamshell yeah. thing where she's clearly reading a book, ebook of some kind. And uh, yeah, it's yeah, some I, kind I of alternate like universe uh, technology or something. It's yeah, yeah. That, that movie's great. Which, I mean, now that I think about it, I hadn't put this together before, but it's a little bit of a spiritual successor to this movie because it's all about not being able to trust the people around you. That's true. Yeah, huh. that's interesting. I never th- thought about it that way, but you're right. It is like, because, you know, they have that uh, the whole, once everybody kind of believes her, there's a whole thing where all the time they're like, can you see that? Can you see that? So, yeah. Yeah, th- that is interesting. I never. You're constantly of, second guessing your own perception of everyone around you. Yeah, yeah. It is kind of another kind of paranoid movie like this. It's definitely, I, I would I would be willing to bet that, uh, um, I think his name's David David Robert Mitchell. I might be mixing up the middle and first name. Um I, I would be willing to bet that this movie and John Carpenter in general is a pretty big influence on him. 
yeah, so an entire entire minute here of this computer simulation. I'm trying to think if there's anything else uh, to mention about this one. I guess I had a question for you, not having watched all the previous minutes. Do they? Does uh, Blair Wilford Remley? Does he have like a tissue sample or anything that's at a, this point? That's a great question. I, w- I was actually thinking about that uh, when we were talking about the the model of the actual the animation there. And I don't know that he does. They never show him taking it. Like he's, you know, most of their scenes of doing medical stuff is basically just them like sticking their hands in stuff. <laughs> like, Cause that would make, that would make the model a little bit more believable if he right. like snagged at least a tissue sample to observe a little bit before, before plugging in his priors. But if he doesn't have that, and if it's not explicit, then I think we just got to chalk this up to uh, some, a woefully, uh, optimistic model <laughs> yeah a bit of a, a bit of a logic. optimistic in terms of how good it actually is at predicting anything <laughs> yeah a bit of a logic leap uh, for sure yeah they could have at least had him you know taking off a little little piece of the tissue and dropping it into a test tube or a petri dish or something prior to this would, would make it a little bit more believable maybe <laughs> with like a piece of dog fur or something like right some yeah dog tissue in there too because it would almost be more believable if we were looking at a digitized view from a microscope than a pure yeah. model yeah you know exactly I mean? exactly yeah i always wonder that too is like you know i can i could have and i think they do that in the prequel actually where you see a more kind of realistic like them looking through a microscope and seeing it happen but yeah that that would be much more acceptable to me I, that would have made more sense and although they'd still have to have this probability thing in there because i think that's the main point of this scene really is is to explain the stakes not not necessarily to show it taking over because we've already kind of established that that happens but i feel like the calculus for how quickly it would take over everything is so like you could easily do this scene with the microscope a stopwatch and a notebook where he just stopwatch and if we see him just stop watching how long does it take for this thing cell to take over the dog cell okay let's assume that that's roughly how long it takes to take over an entire organism divide that by the population of the planet boom that's your timeline you know you could do that with a pen and paper yeah that's true i guess guess john carpenter just maybe thought long division on, on, cool. <laughs> on paper was probably not as visually interesting <laughs> but yeah you're, you're right this whole thing could have been done just kind of you know with a calculator <laughs> uh and a microscope but yeah i guess uh you know this is coming right after escape from new york where uh john carpenter obviously got really into you know badass looking uh very 80s computer simulations of flight and and maps and that kind of thing um, gotcha and the, the, one, the ones in that movie are, are pretty awesome too um but uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a bit of a leap here, um, and lots lots of Wilford Brimley just kind of staring non-discriminately at the computer screen. I'm watching it on a loop here, and every time that that one of those shots comes up, it kind of makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I feel like uh, you're you know, you're saying that watching someone do long division wouldn't be very visually interesting, but it's not like <laughs> Wilford Brimley has any business that he's doing here. You know, business in the actorly sense of like that's very just true. something to do with his hands and body. And so if he was like actively looking at a microscope, then looking at his watch, then writing something down, like that would I think actually work better than him just staring at a screen. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It, it is that that aspect of it is definitely not very uh, not very interesting. Uh, I did want to note that um, you know obviously I mentioned that this scene was added in because they wanted the audience to get a better understanding of what was going on, kind of a clarification. But in the TV version, they think even less of the audience and have Blair read out everything that is written on the screen. Wow, uh, which is really ridiculous. So it's it's Wilford Brimley, you know, equally as disinterested in his voice acting as he was on screen, just saying like probability that one or more uh, people at the, you know, <laughs> just reading it out real slowly. Like it's, it's, re, it's, re, it, it makes the scene even more kind of laughable in some ways. That's wild. <laughs> so I don't know if that was something they, they recorded originally or if, you know, when they, when they decided to syndicate it on TV, they, uh, they brought Wolford Brimley in to do, and I'm sure he was thrilled to do that. <laughs> 
I mean, do you... I feel like half the time they just get somebody who does a decent impression. Yeah, I mean, Wilford Brimley de- is definitely one of those ones that everybody likes to uh, likes to do their, their uh, impression. Diabetes. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, maybe they did. It sounds like him. And it sounds like him in 1982, but... You know, maybe maybe it was uh, that would be an interesting factoid to find out that it was a, sh- a sham that they brought in the, the world's greatest <laughs> Wilford Brimley impersonator. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think that that's pretty much all I had for this minute. Uh, I, I I do as, for all its problems, I do kind of love the computer simulation. It's it's just one of those things that you know I love the movie because it's timeless, but I also I love that this does kind of tie it to that eighties. Uh, aesthetic a little bit. It is kind of fun, even though it is ridiculous. Yeah, and you know, hopefully, I didn't uh, co- completely butcher how these modeling of biological systems sort of work in a field that is not my own. Um, but I would encourage people to go check out, especially things like the mathematical modeling of zombies by Robert Smith? Question mark. He actually legally changed his name, so he has a question mark at the end. Such a common <laughs> name. Uh, which in which my buddy Ben Tippett has a chapter. So yeah, I will. I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. And that, that would be uh, awesome for listeners to check out for sure. Yeah, I think that'll that'll probably wrap up uh, minute forty three. So uh, make sure in the meantime that uh, if you are somehow listening to this and you're forty three episodes in and you haven't uh, subscribed in iTunes, uh, definitely check that out. But we're also uh, on Stitcher and Podcast Addict and and a bunch of the other uh, other places. So wherever you want to get your podcast fix, uh, you know, check us out on there. But uh, even if you're not on iTunes, it does help us a lot to rate and review the show on iTunes. So obviously we're still a very new show um, and we have a limited run. So the more reviews and things we get as we start up uh, really helps, uh, you know, gather new new listeners and things like that. So uh, if, you're, if you're wanting to spread the word in addition to just kind of posting about the show or anything like that, rating and reviewing in iTunes is definitely the biggest way you can uh, can help us out there. So we appreciate that. But uh, in the meantime, while you do that, make sure you don't forget to come back tomorrow for another episode of The Thing Minute. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to thethingminute.com. There you'll find the show notes with links to anything we talked about on this episode and lots of other resources on The Thing. You can also find us on Twitter at The Thing Minute and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thethingminute. But most importantly, subscribe, rate, and review us in iTunes so you'll never miss an episode. Check out other podcasts like this at moviesbyminutes.com, and be sure to head over to starwarsminute.com to listen to the team that started it all. Thanks for listening, and until next time, this is Harper, signing out. Harper, signing out.